0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech, Cambridge University's enterprise zone and the gateway into the university's life sciences and health tech community for collaborations, companies, and investors. In our podcast series, we explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations, finding the right partner, and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech, and in this episode, we explore the theme of developing a collaboration across disciplines, and in particular, the journey to finding the right partner. Joining me today is Professor Jeremy Bamberg. Jeremy is a leader in nanoscience and nanotechnology, working for much of his career at the interface between academia and industry. Jeremy is specifically interested in the development of nanostructured optical materials that undergo unusual interactions with light and his research has various commercial applications. He has led interdisciplinary nano centres at the universities of Southampton and here at Cambridge and developed novel devices within Hitachi, IBM and his own spin-off companies Mesophotonics and Base4. Widely recognized as a leading innovator in nano Jeremy has been recognised for his work most recently by the Institute of Physics who awarded the Faraday Medal in 2017. Hello and welcome Jeremy. That is quite a distinguished career. Can you tell me a little bit more on how you started your career journey? Yeah
1: certainly. I've actually been round, you know circulating many times. I'm back in Cambridge now and I started in Cambridge but actually I never ever intended to be uh, in a university. I always had a sense that I had a company destiny. I wanted somehow to, to make things happen. And I sort of saw the universities uh, when I was growing up in the 80s as a sort of a sort of stayed place. And uh, yeah, I, I always imagined myself in Californian high tech. So actually, that was sort of my trajectory. I, I, um, I managed to actually get an electricity company. We had a national electricity company at the time in, in the UK. And I got them to sponsor my um, PhD, even though they only sponsored my, uh, my undergraduate even though they only ever sponsored um, engineers. And I said, well, you should sponsor physicists as well. And they said, okay, that's fine. And then they had to place me somewhere. So I got, I got stuck in a, a, a research center. Actually, it was pretty interesting, um, trying to understand how we make electricity cheaper when, and get people to, to change their, their use of it. So, so they had tried really, really hard to get me to come and work for them afterwards. Uh, so I really nearly went into nuclear power. Uh, which, ha- which has lots of issues and problems. It was really interesting. They did a good job, but I decided I would then do a PhD. And so I actually went to the other place. I went to Oxford, mainly because I started working on lasers and they're really pretty. I, I mean, I really just like looking at them. I actually, at the time was making lasers um, make really, really short pulses of light so that you could actually watch things happening, watch electrons moving. And it was very visual for me. And that was actually quite important in my um, research. I needed to feel... So just, you know, it was aesthetic as well. So I did that. And then, uh, then I thought about going to the U.S. And so then I actually was really lucky and I got um, an IBM fellowship in, in the U.S., in California. So I thought, you know, that's my dream. Actually, I followed my girlfriend out there. So what happens is, is more serendipitous than that. Um, I, was, I was all set to work out there. And then she got a job there first. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess I have to come now. So <laughs> I, I basically took something. And then that was a really good experience for me. I mean, both, both the interaction with IBM, I was in, across the university and IBM, and I got a sense of that environment, very high-tech research environment. Um, but also California, where, you know, the attitude is just do it. And, and also there's a sense of empowerment and encouragement, which I thought was really wonderful.
0: So why so I like that
1: hugely. And um, at the time, I also had a, a research fellowship back in Oxford, a Junior Research Fellowship. So at some point they said, well, are you actually ever gonna come back? And, and so I decided, okay, well, let me just see if I could ever live back in the UK. I actually missed, the one thing I really missed was drizzle. It's an underrated weather condition, I would say. <laughs> um, I, I grew up in the north of England. And, uh, you know, it's part of the moorland. And uh, the I mean, it doesn't exist in California. So basically you get 10 days of drench and that's it. And there's no real season. And it's really beautiful. It's very nice. But, you know, the sun dropping into the ocean every day, you can get a bit bored with it. So um, I came back to the UK. To, and then I came back to this fellowship. And within a week I decided that was the wrong decision. Um, so, I mean, hopefully this gives a sense of the serendipity of a, of a career. So I think the reason was... Um, the college I happened to be at, that the head of it when I was interested in where I'd been, and he said, Tell me, what's it like in the real world? And it was only then I realized that he, I mean, he was a very eminent lawyer, he'd spent all his time in that college. I mean, he was an undergraduate there and a graduate student, and then a postgraduate, and then he was a research fellow and then a fellow, and he never left. And it just It just was the exact opposite of what California had been for me. And I just found that I really had to leave that environment. So then I took a job in industry in Hitachi. And so then I was all set to carry on with that. And I developed quite a long uh, uh, standing interaction with Japan, which I really enjoyed. And then at some stage, some UK universities came and said to me, well, would you consider coming and working with us? And I said, well, that was not my plan at all. I was going to go back to the States now and work for Motorola or uh, Banksy Rocks or one of these other companies. And they had a position possibly there. And, um, but I went down and and actually I went to Southampton and there was a very cool person who showed me around there, a professor called Tony Hay, who was sort of between physics and electronics. And he was really into sort of future technology and computing. He worked with... um, uh, uh, a whole variety of different people but but Richard Feynman he'd written a book with Richard Feynman who was one of my heroes and so um, he persuaded me in fact to try and see what a university was like and I gave myself a five-year plan let's just see what happens and and indeed it turned out fantastically well so now I feel I'm in the right sort of place balanced between university and uh, industry. That is uh,
0: that is such a Totally not what I was expecting, Jeremy, (laughs) completely not at all. Um, And it was really interesting that that point you made about um, the professor, the imminent professor, you know, having not experienced industry life. And just I just want to explore that a little bit, because now where you are in your career, um, would you say that that? Industry experience would benefit a lot of students and researchers, particularly those that are thinking maybe at some point I might do some research project that spins out?
1: Well, I'm extremely positive about that sort of experience, but it doesn't have to be always the same form that I had it in. I was extremely lucky to go to Hitachi at a time when it really believed, and I think it still does, in in long term research. So when I worked for Hitachi, the greatest thing was that I was asked to fill out every year a research plan. But my research plan was how what I was doing was going to affect the company in 25 years. And I never had that length of timescale. It's something I don't even have in academia, never mind any other industry I've worked in, which is more like three to six months. So I can justify anything over a 25 year timescale. But it was a really good experience because basically I wasn't I wasn't told what to do. I was just told to do something useful for the company, which is actually much more difficult. It was really hard. And, but given a lot of freedom, so I really then tried a number of things. I learned to take risks. Now that's a fantastic experience to grow up in research, to just try and do something useful, unconstrained. Um, I think if you're you're younger and you go to a particular company which is telling you to do this, you know, it's got a contract, has to deliver it in three months. That can be a very different sort of experience. It is useful because you get a sense of what's important in industry, and. Also, I think a sense of deep understanding is not the same thing necessarily as solving a problem. That's often the trade-off you find in industry. You just want to cludge it so it works for the moment and deep understanding will wait later because you really have a tight time scale and you know, tight resources. So, but I think that's a very valuable experience as well when you're trying to do academic projects because actually the same balance is there as well. But it's not normally made explicit. Um, so I, I think you learn a lot by, by having some experience with the industry, however that is.
0: Fantastic. So in your current, your current role in, in, in nanotechnology, what's, what's your average day looking like at the moment, Jeremy?
1: My average day probably really resembles everybody else's average day. I stare at a screen and I type furiously. um but I'm lucky I do sit down I I sit down with my team for like four hour meetings with a whole set of them I'm really discussing deeply about the data they're taking what they're going to do next what it means so just really sort of tussling and wrestling with the science and that's the privilege and that's actually what I really enjoy even I occasionally go in the lab as well generally what I'm doing is I'm writing and editing lots of pieces of paper scientific papers but but all sorts of other things um, so, I'm sort of tied to a computer, but a lot of the, I mean, the really interesting thing is in the arguments and the discussions. That's where I think new science really emerges.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of nanotechnology, complete novice here, w- tell me a bit more about nanotechnology and particularly the applications. Um, and Connect Health Tech is, is about the life sciences coming together with the physical sciences. So, w- are there any potential um, and applications within the healthcare sphere um, that could have real benefits along that clinical pathway or for tra- uh, patient treatments?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many possible um, directions. So, nano is essentially making things on very small scales, I mean, a lot bigger than atoms and molecules, but a lot smaller than the current technologies that we have. And there's all sorts of dreams people are sort of familiar with movies where you make these tiny nano submarines that move around your body, mending things or zapping things. I mean, so one of the points is the body can do that sort of thing. It has its own machinery, but we can't make anything like that at the moment. So you can see there's a huge space that's available and but what we can do is we can make very functional things, things that make light or electrical measurements or, or molecular measurements. So there's a whole space there where we combine, if you like, the vision of biology with the technologies that we're interested in. Now, I mean, I on my side, I'm convinced that the real paradigm advance that we need in healthcare is is actually in in sort of monitoring and sensing. So at the moment, people are treated in surgeries or hospitals. It's very expensive. And we're doing it as a sort of patch afterwards rather than seeing what's going wrong. Um, We have early technologies like Fitbit, but Fitbit is actually completely useless really for telling your health. So it turns out physiological health doesn't really tell us very much. We need to know about biochemistry. So the molecules that that are very trace amounts going around our bodies. So we have to measure that. It's a sort of area where genomics is no help at all either. I can measure your genome, But it tells you about only certain rare things. Actually, it's not very helpful for your health. Um, And what I really want to do is to to measure things repeatedly. I want to see how it's changing day to day, month to month, year to year. And again, so genomics is not any help for that. So we need sensing of sort of sub-micromolar trace um, concentrations of molecules. And that's where nano can really help, making new types of sensors. I'm working on optical sensing, but there are others as well. And I think that will be a big shift in the next five to ten
0: years. And do you see those sorts of applications um, moving out of the clinic so in potentially I could be monitoring and sensing at home with some small device that I have, at, you know, within the home, etc. cetera? Yeah, I mean,
1: so, so classically what I'm trying to do at the moment is build the intelligent toilet. Oh. Uh, no, we call it a smart bathroom to different people. It depends on, you know... Who your, you're you talking your... to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so, but, but, uh, but, you know, it's amazing we don't have anything like this at the moment. So people talk about taking blood, but it's rather, you know, complicated to be doing that repeatedly. Diabetics have to do this a lot, but it's not something we want everybody to have to do. There are people trying to go through skin to get to blood, but actually, uh, you know, urine or saliva are very available. And there are ways then to be able to monitor long term. And we're just not doing anything like that at the moment because we don't have the sensor. So, So my aim is actually to put something that's a combination of a DVD player and your mobile phone into your toilet, so it can monitor neurotransmitters and hormones over months, weeks, years, and then actually be able to intervene where needed.
0: Wow. So within the next decade, 20 years, what are we looking uh, at? Yeah, I mean, I'm
1: absolutely sure that we'll have something like this within 10 years. It may not be the technology that I'm working on, but, but something like this will happen because it's really the only way forward in many cases. It, it will drive down the cost of healthcare so much. But there's strong reasons for trying to do it, and it really depends on physical sciences advances now connected to biotech and healthcare.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic, really fascinating. And, and is that still at the moment, clearly within the, the, the research phases? Um, but you've taken out other research, and you've been had the opportunity to take spin out research and create successful ventures um, from that research. What was that journey like? Tell me more about that journey when you've been able to take that research you know, to those next levels.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always tell people what I really don't like in scientific papers is the bit at the end where you say, this could be useful for this.
0: Okay. I mean,
1: uh, so my view is, that's sort of part of my background. My view is either you've tried it out and figured out if it is useful or not, or you shut up. But somehow it feels a bit dishonest to do that. I think more, more deeply, The difficult thing is that science doesn't just happen and you hand it over to technology and development people. What you need to do is to take that, to drive that process yourself and go with it. And you have to learn a lot in the process. So sometimes it works going to larger companies. Sometimes you have to do a spin out, but but, uh, you do have to push it forward yourself. And, And for spin outs, really the crucial thing is to create a team. So that's the enjoyable part as well. It's also part of the academic research is that, uh, it's really all about the team and how well they're working together. That's how likely you are to get some impact to get somewhere with driving this forward, and because it won't go in the direction you expected, you're always going into new directions, discovering that something else completely different is really important. You know, sometimes it's like packaging you know incredibly complicated or, or or you know just just yeah yeah trace trace elements of other things so so yes that that it's a really good thing to do in my experience and not just for me but i also use it as a way to give all of the people who are surrounding me some of that sort of experience as well because it has always helped them in their careers it's it's always a valuable learning experience
0: so it sounds like it's been very rewarding for you in 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 going that extra step and creating spin out ventures ultimately It's
1: always rewarding. You always learn something by doing it. It's not necessarily what you expect to be learning. And sometimes you actually learn a completely different problem that's much more important. And that's actually, you couldn't get that in another way, surprisingly. You can't just go out and look for problems. You have to get deeply involved in them. And the other thing, as I said, is that you have to nurture people through these complications. It's not an easy journey at all. Um, So you have to, but it's quite rewarding nurturing people.
0: Yeah yeah I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to that I just want to go back to you you talking about um things happening that you didn't expect do you have an example that you could you could share with uh, with our listeners um, of you start out doing one thing and, and you know there's just one thing that your your business venture did that you completely didn't expect so so I was
1: involved in a spin out in the early 2000s which was trying to improve optical communication. So what's the backbone of the internet and much better ways of doing it and much faster. And uh, the problem was about six months after we founded the company and got all the money, the the dot-com crash happened. So nobody was interested in buying what we were going to be making. So that induces what's called a pivot, which is you desperately look around for what else can we do with this technology now, what I'm normally interested in is very early stage technologies that have the potential to be really disruptive. So I'm normally involved in something which always has different possibilities. And the main difficulty is trying to select what's the first thing you're going to try and do. So the pivot involved, like okay, what else could we do with this? So they actually then tried to start making um, the idea was to make little projectors that go on your mobile phone. So it has a little red, green, blue laser. And it uses the same waveguide technology we've been developing. And so I learned about completely different things than I'd ever learned before. Waveguides, rare earth systems, and it coupled with my expertise. So it was an interesting journey. And then at the same time, I started also looking at trying to do some biotech with it and that's actually what got me further into the path that I am at the moment so this is now like 20 years ago and we just tried some stuff and actually turned out to look quite interesting and was eventually bought by a British company Renishaw and fostered in a new spin out right up in in Glasgow and so and I started kind of working on that and developing it further so both things were very serendipitous.
0: Brilliant and in terms of interdisciplinary working you you touched upon that Um, and it does have its pros and cons. You know, it, there are different, different things across disciplines that, that don't align, whether that's different languages used technically or different culture, different approaches to working. Um, what are the top three things that you feel are important to know in creating an effective collaboration?
1: So I think that the, we've talked about translation, but there's another sort of translation that's important. And that's actually translating the language of your science. So learn to do that really well at high speed. You can always get more complicated later, but learn to be really simple but clear. So that's extremely important. Then I think the next thing is find, learn what other people find interesting or motivating. So it's not really just about you pushing, but you've got to figure out what other people, what, what's, what's motivating them, and then you can bring things to them. Um, and then also, you know, you've got to really understand the guts of the other disciplines you're trying to collaborate with. So you can't just rely on somebody else to do that work for you. You've got to get involved. And particularly, you've got to ask questions. Because always the questions you ask will come from a very different direction. And so they'll always be quite interesting to the other people. They won't, they won't sort of think you're you know, um, too simplistic for it. They'll just, it's mostly that they'll go like, no, I never thought of that. Mm. Um, and that will lead to interesting conversations and something that's new for them as well as new for you.
0: Yeah, and as you said, you talked about uh, earlier in the conversation that those discussions and, and debates and, uh, around research, the data, et cetera, really, that's where you said new science is discovered, you know, that, that type of conversation and, and getting in deep, I suppose, with potentially new, new, new partners, new collaborators, you know, getting really deep in there is, is part of that process. I would say that there's depth, but there's also
1: breadth as well. So often... I mean, people in academic settings often feel like my knowledge just goes this far, but no further. And so if it goes beyond that, they'll just say, well, I can't really help you. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not so useful in my view, because you have tools to be able to understand and connect to what you're doing. So we, I might be working in optics, for instance, but if I am looking at a biotech sensor, I might really have to understand flow on the nanoscale. It's not my speciality at all, but I have to understand it. And then, of course, I'm asking interesting questions and I'll do something that's very different from what anybody else can do. And I can't say I just don't know that. I have to sort of go with it because it's, it's the whole thing that's important, that the application, not just this piece of science. So I think you've got to be comfortable with that. And uh, it's an exciting journey, I think.
0: What's your, um, what, what sort of advice would you give to someone wishing to find a partner to collaborate with um, you've talked about being able to, to, to listen, to ask questions, um, whether it is for research or to create a spin-out venture. What advice would you give to somebody listening in right now thinking, OK, I, I
1: could do this? You've got to talk to a lot of people. Um, so, so spin-outs somehow are easier because you have people who are willing to listen. So, the venture capitalists, and there's also technologists who are just interested in scanning the technology horizons. Those people are very good to listen to and to talk at. The more difficult thing is to say, decide what's the healthcare problem you're going to solve? because those conversations are much more difficult if you talk to a clinician or a medic they'll they'll you know they're working on some very small niche problem typically this might be very important but that's the thing that they do they don't tend to be generalists because that doesn't work clearly they have to be you know very specific on what they're trying to solve and so you can't go around and horizon scan in the same way at all so actually it's always very difficult to find what's the right problem you can work on um and so there's i think some just trying it out, trying with different people, expecting some things to fail, until I think you find the niche that's going to work. Um, so, so maybe don't get too dismayed by things that don't work as well.
0: Have you found it easy finding partners or collaborate uh, or partners to collaborate with um, within your your area of expertise?
1: No, like most people, it's not it's not easy. I mean, the real thing when you're trying to do it is you find somebody who just you click with who has maybe the same level of optimism or is just intrigued and you just get on with, you have to enjoy that process with them. Otherwise it becomes pain and you're doing it for, you know, you're doing it because you feel you ought to do it. And it's just so difficult that that doesn't sustain you for enough. So you've got to enjoy doing it as well as ought to do it.
0: Tell me about funding, because this is a question that crops up a lot with interdisciplinary collaborations is it easy frustrating how have you found it Mm. in finding funding when you've got the partner, we need a bit more funding to push this on this research on what's it been like so I normally find it
1: interdisciplinary science technology is actually easier to get funding in some ways because the vision can be fuller you're not niche you're going broader so you can expand a vision um more richly and I think that communicates itself quite well and then you have to articulate why you have this particular partner so I think that side can actually be really helpful people can see why why they should fund it but on the other side for the biomedical stage this can be frustrating because we live in a world of silos so the way things are funded we have physical sciences funding we have medical funding and the physical sciences sort of see this well, is it really fundamental? You know, you're just doing some development. This next bit of funding you need is not to find out anything new. It's just to sort of optimize it a bit, isn't it? Whereas the medical side will say, well, you haven't actually shown this is of any clinical value yet. You haven't actually measured any patients yet. So how do we know this is of any help? So we can't fund it yet. So both sides sort of say, it's sort of interesting, but we can't really fund it yet. And that's this sort of valley and it's not even a valley of death in this case in terms of industrial translation it's a sort of um a funding gap uh, of interest and that you know i try and work to help also the research funders in the uk close that gap there's certainly aspirations to do that but it's indeed it's a real issue because you don't know something coming out of physical sciences is yet going to be useful so you could spend a lot of money and actually not be useful but at the same time you need to be able to try it out to find if it has clinical value so, so this is a, you know, a difficult thing to decide on what to do. So that, that's been hard, yeah.
0: Would you say that we need possibly um, more risk taking with, with funding in that, in that particular gap area, whether that's from um, government funding, universities, et cetera, you know, do we need to take a few more risks given the pace of which technology does um, and does progress?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a strong fan of trying to encourage a question of demonstrators. So, so it's maybe a slightly different sort of funding. That the problem about saying that we're going to take more risks, which is certainly an aspiration of a number of governments over the last years in the UK and, and laudably, and, and also the research councils, is that it's, in the end it's really hard to do. That the you know the biggest risk is actually you just roll the dice and you just choose randomly, which is not bad in some ways if you don't want to go with preconceptions. But we also don't like it when we waste a huge amount of money on something that really, you know, other people would say, well, it never would have gone anywhere anywhere, anyway. So how, how do you balance this? We don't have an enormous amount of funding in the UK compared to other places. So we have to it's still incredibly valuable. We have to sort of protect that. Getting that right is not not easy on either side. But I would like to see more funding sort of to take on initial early bits of work and 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 help people through that and often it's actually really about funding young researchers just just keeping them going a little bit and we do have some funding sources that come to the university but but they're always in small like two three month chunks and here we're sort of talking about year-long chunks to get something to the next stage where you can then start to apply for funding you have to get you have to get across that sort of um, marshland of possibility
0: bridge the gap there What types of things are you researching right now? A range of different things, actually. Um, So I'm doing things like I'm trying to
1: measure uh, a single molecule, which is vibrating at room temperature and ambient conditions. So I can actually watch it with light and watch it moving and watch other things interact with it. So we've got to the stage where we can do that. And it it can do catalysis, for instance. We're watching catalysis, single molecule at a time. And then I'm doing other things like I'm watching little sort of swimmers, I'm making little swimmers which move with light. So I am actually trying to get things, I'm trying to make these little machines that go around in our blood in the end, but we don't have anything like that. So even the first little things is great. Um, And then another thing I'm doing at the moment is trying to make some detectors of light in the mid-infrared. Because all of the technology we have to make detectors there needs cooling. And I'm trying to avoid cooling because that's an area of interest for lots of molecular vibration. So, if you want to look at the, the workings of the body, again, it would be great to have cheap, very uh, efficient, uncooled detectors there.
0: And is this a, a collaboration type of research project that you're, that you're working on?
1: I, I never do any projects on my own. Because they're just not as good. I've never actually written a paper with myself, I think, only. Because it's just... I know it wouldn't be as good. It's out of those interactions that better things come.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's that's really great. And so exploring that just a little further, what would your tips be for collaborating with others?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, respect is so incredibly important as well. So just working on it. M- making sure you understand what motivates the other person so always trying to get a sense of what they're wanting not what you're wanting um and and I think also you know just enjoy the conversations you don't know quite where it's going to go so just being willing to to go with that on the other hand when I'm doing a collaboration I want to get something done I'm pretty focused so then I'm more about okay this is what we've done this is what you're going to do next so I'm a little bit of a control freak. And so while well, I understand that other people might not have the same view, they, get it, they know what I'm wanting from them very clearly. So they just get a sense of you know, clarity. I think that's really helpful. So then it's also feeding back to them what we're doing. So they always know what I'm doing, not a big silence. And then like, oh, yeah, what you gave us was very useful. Uh, because it's just, it's not collaboration then. So it's giving some of the intellectual ownership to them as well. It's saying, oh, we got this, we don't understand it yet. So they can say, oh, well, have you thought about this? If you do that, then you're, you're, you're doing the interesting bit together. You're not saying, well, thank you for your sample. We, we looked at it. Now we've finally figured it out. Here's the paper. Sign your name to it. It's not That's not a real collaboration. A real collaboration is a journey together. Yeah. So those are the things that I found very helpful in collaborating. And it's what I want from somebody you who's know, collaborating with me on the other side.
0: How do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things in, in your role currently?
1: Yeah, I depend on other people, actually, a lot. So that's why listening is quite important. So I'll I'll say something I'm doing, like, say, these mid-infrared detectors, and I wait for people to tell me, oh, but I saw something much better over here. or don't you know about this? So sort of floating those ideas to be shot down a little bit so I can gain a bit more quickly uh, sort of a a group. I rely on my my group to keep me informed as well. Didn't I read this? Uh, And that's actually also the part about going to conferences, which is now miserable for the moment. And, and it's why going to some physical conferences is really important. Just So I, I normally go to things I don't know about at a meeting rather than the things I do know about. So i will actually randomly going into sessions sometimes, just open the door and go and listen to something. Um, just I'm more likely to learn that way than I am going to something I know a lot about. So those are the main things, but basically it's impossible. Uh, so you've got to sort of understand it's just not something you can be on top of. You just have to have the largest sort of size if you like you have to have a balloon a way of expanding your cross-section in a physical so that you just get to hear about other ideas you didn't really know about
0: be the sponge jeremy can soak it all up (laughs) yeah yeah well actually you can't
1: so then the difficult thing is to know what you're going to listen to as well am i I going to listen to this or not so you have to very quickly evaluate is this important for me to get into deeper or not yeah and then if it is important you have to somehow identify some time where you can just think about it a bit So I tend to do things like when I'm developing, I use OneNote a lot because it's actually really good for collecting information and collating it and making links. So I'll just maybe spend an hour for myself trying to ferret out an idea a bit more, and you can very quickly get to the state of the art on a subject. That's one of the amazing things about the internet and our information at the moment. So that's sort of how I do it at the moment as well. I invest little bits of time for myself in just trying to scope out an area and then decide if I should come back to it or not.
0: Yeah. Now you said you cycle. Do you use your the time that you're cycling in as a bit of a process time or thinking about the day ahead?
1: Yes, I, it's it's good to do that. But actually, I find myself being too tense now cycling, so I'm actually trying to practice sort of mindfulness cycling a little bit to just let it all go. I find that my brain will wake me up at four in the morning if I've forgotten something and remind me, and I, I don't really want to be reminded at that time in the morning. So. But it is—it is true. Trying to find times to just let things um, merge around is not, so yeah, not easy.
0: not easy. No. no, The brain's got a lot going on, um, and, and, and particularly at times as well, it's—it's a—it's a struggle to find that yeah. space.
1: and we used to do that on trains and on planes. So, funnily enough, you know, I don't schedule a couple of hours in a coffee shop just staring out the window, but that's probably the useful bit. Um, And I I do do occasional things like that. I mean, I do things also with my group. So you can do that in a group sense, group brainstorming. So Mm -hmm. that's what pubs are good for at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: When we can get to them, of course. And and how would someone reach out and and start a conversation with, you know, you're a senior research group leader. How would they reach out to someone such as yourself if they wanted to, to to collaborate on, on some research? I've heard that you're doing
1: Yeah. So, so generally I don't do social media at all. So the only thing you can do is send me an email and then you have to, you know, I'm very time poor. So the question is how can you interest me in the shortest possible thing? So you have to just, something has to stand out. That's going to be like, huh, that's worth me spending some effort on. Um, So because it's just effort on both sides. You have to hook me somehow.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just a few more questions. I say, you are writing a letter to the young Jeremy just starting out on his journey through university. What are the things you would say in that letter to the younger Jeremy? What are the key things you would say? I think there are
1: two things that I would say. One of them is about risks. So, so always take risks because they always work, is my experience, which is sort of interesting. Now, you can say that's counterfactual only because I've become successful would I say that. And if I'd taken risks that didn't work, I wouldn't be where I am now. But I still think it's true because you never know if they, you know, you, the point, point is to take them and then not look back, just make them work. And I, and I keep that sort of positive journey. So that I think is something and I've told myself, now I did take risks, but I worried about them a lot. Um, and I just sort of, maybe I shouldn't have worried about them so much. And then the other one is that it's important to realise that people are the key. So investing time in people is, the, is an important thing and not again worrying about that. Um, yeah. So it's sort of not... The signals I got from the research culture that I grew up in, I think both of those were not accentuated. Mm. They're more encouraged now, but that's what I would have said to myself.
0: And I, I, I fully yeah, take on, on board that. It, it, taking, it's difficult though, isn't it? Taking a risk and just jumping into that void. And going with it, going with the flow. That's that's one of the things I say, So I'm going to go with the flow and just see where that takes me. Um, but it can be really, really tough to do. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, different circumstances and um, timing. Timing is a big one, isn't it, as well? Yes, yeah, so you have timing, but there's also
1: what you need are sort of supporters who help you on that journey. So uh, it's miserable if you have nobody to talk to or if everybody says that's a stupid thing to do. Um, so you need to find a few people or say, that sounds really cool. Uh, you know and, and just to help you help you get through that and just give you back some positive um, feelings when you're down because you'll always go up and down anyway yeah um, so just trying to get a group of people around you who are supporters is, is a very good thing to do
0: and in these particular challenging times <laughs> what's been a great challenge for you to overcome since this pandemic hit us and how are you tackling it whether that's on a you know professional level the the
1: actually it's a Something that I didn't quite expect was just the lack of random conversations, because mostly what I do now is very programmed. I know exactly what I'm doing. and I'm doing it at a certain time. If I've got time, I'm on my own, typically. So I'm doing stuff. But what I'm not doing is just shooting the breeze with somebody else a little bit randomly. So so and that that has a little bit of a feeling of trudging. I go, you know, we can do our jobs. I'm doing fine. I can't. I, how can I possibly complain? I'm doing lots of things I enjoy, but still, there's a bit of a feeling of trudging through everything because of those missing that stimulation of occasionally chatting to people, like in an interview like this. Um, so, I think I, I mean. So, what I basically am trying to do is make sure I have a few of those. I have to slightly program them, but just you know, latching on to people occasionally or just meeting up for a conversation, a coffee now. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, a little
0: bit. Yeah, and it, it's still a challenge, but it's still we are we we like to interact as people. We 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 fundamentally, I think, one of the things that the pandemic has certainly shown me is that that need to interact with others, even on a, a small scale, but that face-to-face and physical um, interaction is, is so good for the soul, let alone anything else. If then it's just...
1: Well, if, it, if it's good for your soul, it's also good for whatever else you're doing yeah. because you're creative and, and optimistic when you're doing it. So I think it's much more profound than that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think I actually am an optimistic person and enthusiastic when I'm interacting with other people. But on my own, I'm quite a grumpy person, I think. So, so maybe that's <laughs> the <talent> as well. <laughs>
0: It brings you, it takes you out of yourself, doesn't it, in talking to others? It really does. So, yeah, <laughs> I understand. Um, we're just coming to, to, towards the, um, the end of this conversation. Um, one of the things that people don't often like to talk about, but I think it's something that's really um, interesting for particularly those who've had a, a, a really uh, varied and experienced career journey, is failure what would you say has been a a big failure or biggest failure for you and what did you learn from it Jeremy? I've had
1: several in terms of things like grants or positions I applied for that I didn't get Uh, and uh, it's got a later stage of my career really I, I, I had it too easy in some ways at the early stages of my career and and you've always got to be prepared for failure, but I was pretty resilient to it. I I think it's important to just realize, I mean, there's always going to be failure that 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 has to be part of the taking risks that we talked about before. Um, so you have to think it's good. And I think just, you know, learning, learning, um, about yourself, I actually think one of the good things is that normally if I fail at something, I say, well, that, that would have been a bad idea anyway. So clearly it's sort of fated. So somehow this idea that, that there was something not guiding you, but, but, as you realize, well, maybe I didn't really want that anyway. Um, so so I, I normally take quite a positive stance that way. We, we have a tradition in my own research group that whenever we publish a paper or we have a major success, uh, you have to, the, the, the first person on the paper sale or the, the grant has to make a cake for everybody else. And we take pictures. Our website is full of cakes. It has to be in the style of whatever the success was. So we have a cake at publication page, which is fabulous. Um, But we have been discussing whether we actually should not just celebrate success, but also failure. So if your grant fails, you should make a cake or we were talking about other people should make you a cake, but somehow that sort of transaction is good. Just to remind yourself that, you know, we depend on each other a lot more and it's not, there's many more things that one can do.
0: Yeah. And it's part of the journey. It is part of the journey. Fail fail fast and then we'll pick up and and, and move and carry on and carry forwards. So yeah. That's, it's part of it. I love the, the cakes of publication. I did see that on the website. I didn't explore it at the time, but I thought, okay, I'll have to come back to you. Now I know. Now. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Just finally, what or who inspires you? There there are a number of people
1: who inspire me. Richard Feynman, I really liked uh, and and only heard once, actually, in in the flesh, just because of his lucidity and ability to talk to so many different audiences. Somebody who really helped me and inspired me was uh, somebody who's still alive now called Sir Peter Knight, Uh, who's a physicist who's actually driving a lot of the quantum agenda in the UK forward again he was he was incredibly enthusiastic um I used to go to the pub with him and I would inevitably end up gesticulating and spilling his pint of beer all over him um but he was he was always enthusiastic more generally people who inspire me are actually gentle people who carry on doing fabulous science at a high level so there's something we we have a little bit about People who shout and, and you know, they're, they're very much pers- you know uh, prima donnas a little bit. But I also really appreciate the people who are gentle and manage to carry on with everything, and just quiet and calm. And that's my role model. That's how I'd like to grow older gracefully, if it's possible.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I have got some quickfire questions. This is outside of the, 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 the realm of the, uh, the, the the formal conversation. So whatever comes to the top of your head, So I'll start with, if you could be an animal, what would you be and why?
1: Uh, Ferrets, they move so gracefully.
0: What is your pet hate? Mm, Putting
1: the uh, washing up in the wrong place. If you could time travel, where would you go and when? Oh, I'd go to the future. I'm just interested. But I'd go like a thousand years into the future. I just want to know, has the human race survived or transmogrified? Or have we given the planet Earth to something else?
0: Is it better to be lucky or make your own luck?
1: Yeah, I believe in making your own luck. There's something about a positive attitude that I think makes your own luck.
0: What skill still evades you? What's that uh, one thing you think, oh gosh. I think being calm. Is
1: yeah, yeah, there are lots of other things that, that I, you know, I'd love to do. But, but I think there's actually, it's more, more personal things as I get older. I look mm-hmm. at other people and I'm just impressed by something that I know, okay, I've got a lot to learn. And, and it's sort of this calm manner that would be great.
0: And what's your favourite movie and why?
1: Ah, um, Blade Runner is a fantastic movie. Deep, uh, has drizzle, you know, what else could you want?
0: A lot of drizzle, a lot of drizzle in that film. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant answer. Um, and finally, what music discovery or rediscovery have you made in the past 12 months? We've all been oh. discovering things in pandemic time. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a pianist, so I'm not a piano. but,
1: um, you know, so I, in lockdown I had to play for myself. And so I was also interested in rediscovery of female composers, so two particular composers, Amy Beach and Camille Chaminard, sort of from the early 1900s. I didn't really know at all, and so I, I listened and bought some of their music and play it now, and really enjoy it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! Absolutely fantastic. Well, Jeremy, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so so much for being a part of this podcast, sharing your journey and experiences and and developing collaborations across interdisciplinary uh, work. It has been really fantastic. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Thanks, Paul. It's been very fun.